So if you remember from two weeks ago, we covered what we call the sursum corda, the lifting up of our hearts. And we spoke of the lifting up of our hearts of being a profound relational exchange between us and God through Jesus Christ. Because while we lift up to the Lord both our praise and our thanksgiving and our worship, we also lift up to Him our sinfulness, our brokenness, our wounds, all of our human frailties in exchange for what He has to offer us. His righteousness, His wholeness, His grace, and His power, and His peace that goes along with the order that He gives us for our lives. In the Sursum Corda, once we have done that, it moves us right into the preface, excuse me, into the preface, which if you remember, is an offering of thanksgiving by the priest that we join into with active listening and an active offering. As we hear the priest go through the preface, that preface changes throughout the various seasons. But at the end of the preface, it always ends with the same words. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify thy glorious name evermore, praising thee and saying. So again, we have this picture very tangibly given to us in our mind and in our offering to God. Therefore, with angels and archangels, all of heaven, heaven and earth are one and are joined together for the eternal worship of God, which leads us into the singing of that eternal song that has always been sung and will always be sung in the eternal liturgy and worship in heaven, the Sanctus, Holy Holy, holy, which if you remember ends with blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And that word Hosanna is the cry, save us. The people were literally crying out, deliver us, save us. I had someone just a little while ago, and rightly so, wonder, why is it that on the first day of Advent every year, on the first Sunday of Advent, we have the triumphant entry? of Christ into Jerusalem. And that can make you scratch your heads, except for the meaning of it. What is it that we're preparing for in Advent? For Christ to come to us and deliver His people. And that's what the triumphal entry was all about, which is why we also do it at the tail end of Lent. Right On Palm Sunday, we address that. But it is the greatest picture of the King of kings and Lord of lords and the person of Jesus Christ coming to us, His Jerusalem, to save us. And so we look at that in that preface and in the Sanctus, Hosanna in the highest. So we come now, you can turn to page 25 in your booklets. Having sung the Sanctus... We now enter into what is known as the canon of the Mass. The canon of the Mass. And that word canon has nothing to do, obviously, with artillery. The word canon is a word that means the rule or something that is heavily regulated. That's what the word canon means. So why is this called the canon of the Mass? Because everything we do from now in the Mass until those post-communion prayers later on 
everything in between the Sanctus and those post-communion prayers never changes. Every Mass, any day, any celebration that we do, everything stays the same. There's nothing that ever changes, which makes sense because we know we're heading right into the prayers of consecration over the bread and the wine to become the body and blood of our Lord. We're simply going through what He instituted. We're not going to change that, see? And we'll see that actually today. So the canon of the Mass is that section between the Sanctus and the post-communion prayers. Another word for this portion that we're going to get immediately into of the Mass in the canon is called the anaphora. The word anaphora means the offering up of something. Anaphora means the offering up of something. Because it's in this part of the Mass, you're going to see and always see the priest and the people joining him in their minds and hearts, offering up the bread and the wine while asking the Holy Spirit to make it for us the body and blood of our Lord. And we at the same time know that it indeed becomes that on our behalf. And so we, we begin in the canon of the Mass with an introduction to the words of institution. See, before we actually relive, bring what happened in the past into the now, reliving the institution of the Lord's Supper by our Lord Jesus Christ the night that He was betrayed, we are given words reminding us of why He instituted this supper, the Eucharist. Look on page 25 at the very top and follow along. The priest prays, All glory be to Thee, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, for that Thou of Thy tender mercy didst give Thine only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption who by his own oblation of himself once offered, made a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Let's stop there. You've got to see a couple of things that we are already acknowledging about the nature of God in Jesus Christ expressed in the institution of the Lord's Supper that night. And The first is this. All glory be to Thee, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, for that Thou of Thy what? Tender mercy didst give Jesus Christ. And why? For our redemption. The very nature of God expressed to us in those words is the nature of mercy, the nature that none should perish, And the nature that is because of that mercy, He sent our Lord Jesus Christ to rescue us from all sin and death through His life, His passion, and so on. We acknowledge the nature of God. We are approaching the God who does not hang us, dangling us over the fires of hell, awaiting our first mistake. We serve and live in and move from a God who is filled with mercy, who is filled with compassion towards us, so much so that He gave this offering even up to death. One sacrifice 
to satisfy all. Which is why you see those words, Jesus Christ for our redemption, who by His own oblation, that's His willing offering of Himself, once made, and we have a bunch of words, full, perfect, sufficient, sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. In other words... We should have no doubt in our mind that the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, out of the tender mercy of God, in this very rescue of all mankind effort, is complete. It lacks nothing. And so when we partake of His body and blood to give us life, there is nothing lacking. For we celebrate the God who out of His mercy has done it all. We must simply, I say simply, we must remain in Him. That's our role. He's the covenant sacrifice. He's the covenant maker. He is the covenant keeper by His own sacrifice and the great high priest, all of it. And the church lets us know that in just this first half of that top paragraph. Hebrews 10.10 speaks of this which says, by that will, in other words, the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Now let's look at the second part of that paragraph, beginning with, and did institute. And did institute and in His holy gospel command us to continue a perpetual memory of that His precious death and sacrifice until His coming again. We are commanded by the Lord who did it with His disciples the night He was betrayed to keep an ongoing, that word perpetual, ongoing remembrance. But we have to break for a second and remind ourselves of this. I know most of us know this, but it's good to be reminded. The word remembrance comes from the word anamnesis. Anamnesis. Sounds like amnesia, right? Well, it should, because the word anamnesis, if you took the word amnesia, what does amnesia mean? You forget. You forget. And you totally blot it out. You've lost it, right? It's gone. Amnesia, you've lost that memory. You cannot attain it in those moments. So what do you think anamnesis means if it's the complete opposite? I get everything. Everything comes to me in reality. In fact, here you go, let's let's do this. Let's discuss our current culture's understanding of the word remembrance and the word remembrance as Jesus put it to His disciples that they would have known. See, if I would ask you, do you remember your high school graduation? Here's what we would probably do in our culture. Our eyes would roll up a little bit, accessing the recesses of our memory, and we would recall some information about something that happened years and years ago. And we might verbalize some of the things that we remember. It could be I might have a few pictures. Oh, here's my graduation picture. And that is the extent of the way that we see the word remember. It's about remembering information. It's about recalling pictures to our mind. And that is exactly where it stops. And that is not what our Lord Jesus Christ says. 
When he says remember and when they hear remember, let me give you a difference. In that culture, when he uses this word, the anamnesis, do you, if he was to say, do you remember your high school graduation? Here's what would happen in Jesus' time and by that definition. The person who had graduated high school would grab you and would take you, if they could, to the very place of the graduation. And along the way, they would probably gather a bunch of people together that either graduated with them or were with their graduation, with them at the graduation. They'd go to the place, they'd set it up, and they would darn near do it again. In other words, it wasn't just a mental recollection. When the Lord says, do this in remembrance for that high school situation, for example... It is about bringing something that was in the past and actualizing it again in the now. Re-experience may be a good word. Just as Jesus Christ was with His disciples in the upper room, when we, by His calling and command, remember Him in the Mass and in the Eucharist, The Lord Jesus Christ, once again, is with His disciples in no less tangible a way. Do you get the difference? This is no mental... Oh, I remember Jesus Christ died. And I I see the, the bread and the wine, and yeah, that represents His body and blood given for me. No, 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 no. Jesus Christ, by His own design and desire for the life of the world, said, when you do this, I'm with you. When you do this, I'm there to give you life as I was there to give my disciples life. That's the word remembrance. So when it says, and did institute in His holy gospel command us to continue a perpetual memory, that's the perpetual memory. The ongoing, actual contact with God who fills us with His life through physical stuff of earth. Okay? So having acknowledged that, we now begin the process with the words of institution. And have you ever noticed that before we say the words of institution, the bell rings? It even says that in there. The bell rings once. Whenever we hear the bell ring, it is given to us to call our attention to what's going on. In other words, it's saying, attend. This is important. Focus. Come together. And so the bell rings once. And now we have the words of institution, which we read together. For in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And I don't know if you notice, but when whoever is celebrating Mass says that, they take the host. The priest takes the host, and as he is saying, he took bread, he lifts it up to God as an offering. He also does something else. He moves his eyes from the altar and casts his eyes heavenward. It's again another one of those actions that show us that we are offering up something of the stuff of earth and calling upon what Christ has promised. 
to let it come back down and be for us the bread of life from which we will never hunger. And that's the action of the priest as he does this. And after he does the, remember, he does the words of institution on the host, on the bread, and the bells ring each time, he lifts it up, puts it down, and kneels and stands back up. We come to the wine. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of this. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. Do this as oft as ye shall drink it in remembrance of me. And he does the same thing. He lifts up the cup heavenward and then bends the knee as he puts it down. And those are the words of institution. Now, before we get to what is known as the epiclesis, which we'll go over in just a minute, there is a prayer just before it. It's that next prayer in the list beginning with wherefore. Let's have a look at that prayer. Wherefore, O Lord and Heavenly Father, according to the institution of Thy dearly beloved Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, we Thy humble servants do celebrate and make here before Thy divine majesty with these Thy holy gifts which we offer unto Thee. The memorial Thy Son hath commanded us to make. Now watch this. Having in remembrance, there's that word again, in now, in the now, having in remembrance His blessed passion and precious death, His mighty resurrection and His glorious ascension, rendering unto Thee most hearty thanks for the innumerable benefits procured unto us by the same. We're not just remembering the death of our Lord. We certainly are. I say we're not just remembering the death of our Lord. What does it tell us? Is coming into actuality right in front of us and for us. His passion and death, His resurrection, His glorious ascension, all of it, the finished work of Jesus Christ is present with us and for us. And so, in light of all of that, we render to Him most hearty thanks, the Eucharist, our thanksgiving. And it says, for the innumerable benefits procured unto us by the same. Then we get to the epiclesis. The epiclesis is the prayer asking God to make the bread and wine His body and blood for us. And so the priest prays that prayer. We most humbly beseech Thee, merciful Father, to hear us and of Thy almighty goodness, vouchsafe to send down Thy Holy Spirit upon these Thy gifts and creatures of bread and wine, that they may be changed into the body and blood of Thy most dearly beloved Son. Now the priest's actions also are there for you to understand what we are doing together. Because notice it doesn't say, the priest does not say, and I most humbly beseech thee. What does it say? And we collectively are beseeching God. And so you will see the priest, we've talked about this before, he will take his hands and he will round them as if to lift them up to heaven and bring down what Christ has to offer. Every time he does the epiclesis, it's raising up and Lord, bring it down for us. But then he takes his hands and he holds them over the chalice while he finishes this prayer. You know what that's a picture of? 
What did the Holy Spirit do before all was created? It hovered over the waters. Right? The Holy Spirit was brooding over the waters, it says. And then the Word of God spoke everything into existence. When the priest's hands go up and remain over the chalice, it is that symbol that there is a creation and offering of new life going on here. And that's why the priest has to do that. But I want to be clear about something. The Roman Catholic Church and Orthodox Church do not understand the epiclesis in the same way. I'll tell you what I mean. In the Roman Catholic Church, they will point to that prayer, that epiclesis, and they will say right there, in that moment, in that second, that bread and that wine become the body and blood. That's how Rome sees it. In other words, it can only happen by virtue. It's the priest that has something to do with this. Okay, That it happens right that second. Orthodoxy does not believe that. The prayers remind us and put us in the very intent of Jesus Christ. Here's the reality. We don't know. The church will tell you. We don't proclaim to know and pinpoint the specific of when Jesus Christ makes the bread and wine, body and blood. All we know that because God's people have gathered with Jesus Christ and are obedient to do the Eucharist, the great thanksgiving, that He for us makes us, makes for us the bread and the wine to be His body and blood for our life. And again, that's one of the differences. Rome tends to want to spell out a lot of things in detail. Orthodoxy tends to say, this, is, this whole thing is mystery. You really want to try to explain to me how bread and wine become the actual body and blood? You want to try to describe that on paper or in a statement or something? No, 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 no. Just say thank you. Just say thank you. Yes, George. And it's not just that we don't know, it's that we cannot possibly know, which goes back to the fall. Correct. Correct. Very good. Because we are not God. We are made in the image and likeness, but are not God, and therefore there's no possible way we could know. That's right. And so we embrace the fact, we obediently do the Mass as the church has given us, and know that it has happened for our benefit. When? How? We say thank you. We say thank you. Yes, George. Sorry. That's okay. One of one of the things, because a lot of people in this room were part of the transition of this congregation from the Episcopal Church into Orthodoxy, one of, and back to the liturgy of St. one of the things when the Russian Senate, when the Moscow Senate approved the liturgy of St. Tikhon, one of the things they did was rewrite the Ecclesis because it was too it was too Roman mm-hmm. because it was too Anglican mm-hmm. and so and so they put in the Ecclesis and if you look at the Anglican Missal or if you look at the Episcopal Prayer Book you'll see that very that's probably the most significant difference. Um, and probably the one difference that most people coming from those traditions 
will miss. Yeah. Because most people aren't looking for that. Right. Um, in the liturgy. That's right. That's right. And the Epiclesis and St. Gregory, same thing. They're all the same. They're all the same in this in the Western spirituality and expression of the church prior to the schism. So absolutely. So again, you see those actions reminding us, and we, we are praying for this. It's not like we're not praying for it at this point. It's a right prayer to pray, asking God to do what He has always said He would do. In fact, those are always good prayers to, to pray. So now we come into a number of other prayers as we continue to get ready to receive the Eucharist. Now that we have prayed, we did the words of institution, we did the epiclesis, asking God to make it life for us. We pray at the very bottom of page 25. Grant that we, receiving them according to Thy Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, holy institution, in remembrance of His death and passion, may be partakers of His most blessed body and blood. Now this is an interesting statement that we pray. And I think we ought to know what we're praying. We are asking that through this act of remembrance with Christ present and offering Himself to us, in remembrance of His death and passion, we may become partakers of His most blessed body and blood. And there are two thoughts to this that are both right that we need to have in our mind. First, we know that the body and blood are given to us for life and the forgiveness of sins, the remission of our sins. No question about that. But we're also praying a prayer that through this remembrance, we may enter into His death. Now let's think about what that means, that we enter into the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, unless a mustard seed falls to the ground and does what? Dies. It can never spring up and blossom to the fullness of what God created it to be. Is it not true that death always precedes resurrection? That there can be no resurrection without death? So let's think about this. Paul says in one of his epistles. He says, I want to know the power of His resurrection. Now, we could stop there and everybody could just clap and rejoice. Absolutely, right? I want to know the power of His resurrection. But often people skip the last three quarters of that verse. I want to know the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. Somehow being made like Him in His death. Folks, our life is a constant spiritual journey of dying to the results of the fall and living to the new life that Jesus Christ has provided for us. So when we are praying, grant that we receiving them according to Thy Son, our Savior's holy institution, in remembrance of His death and passion, may be partakers of His most blessed body and blood. Lord, help us by Your grace and mercy to enter into that very death and be raised with You anew. Baptism is the symbol of our whole spiritual life. As we go down into the waters, are we not washed free, cleansed from all past sins, results of the fall, given the Holy Spirit, 
and up raised with Him as we come out of the waters in newness of life. Every day is the journey of our baptism. Every day we're asking the Lord to help us die to the things that continue the chaos of our lives so that we might receive the order and new life of the kingdom of God and the peace that goes along with it. Second, top of page 26. And we earnestly desire thy fatherly goodness, mercifully to accept this our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, most humbly beseeching thee to grant that by the merits and death of thy Son, Jesus Christ, and through faith in his blood, we and all thy whole church may obtain the remission of our sins and all other benefits of his passion. We're praying to receive that cleansing we just spoke of. But then it says something interesting. And all of the benefits. All of the benefits of His passion. Let's let's go with this for a minute. What are the benefits of our Lord's passion and death? Besides, we already said the remission of sins. What are the benefits of His passion and death for us? Give me your thoughts. Everlasting life because of that death. Absolutely. What did he destroy when he died? Death itself. One of the benefits of the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ is for those who remain in him, they will not see eternal death. What else? Any other thoughts? Well, you grow more and more like Christ. Because, keep going, yes. Well, that's one of the benefits of His passion. It is. It is. And the church calls that, the theology, theosis. We with unveiled faces, as if we're facing our Lord God, becoming more like Him, growing from glory to glory. And these are just some of the benefits of His death and passion. We could go on and on. Every bit of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, everything that is to be enjoyed in the kingdom of God, from joy to peace, patience, kindness, the agape love of God enveloping us, surrounding us, that we're able to experience one another. All of these things are the benefits procured unto us by His passion as we're speaking of. Third part of that prayer. And we begin and here we offer. Having offered up the bread and the wine, we pray and here we offer and present unto Thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a reasonable, holy and living sacrifice unto Thee, humbly beseeching Thee that we and all others who shall be partakers of this Holy Communion may worthily receive the most precious body and blood of Thy Son, Jesus Christ, be filled with Thy grace and heavenly benediction, and made one body with Him, that He may dwell in us and we in Him. This prayer, when the priest and all of us pray it, it comes from Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Where Paul writes, I beseech you therefore, brethren, 
by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Every time we come to that prayer, whether I'm praying it or Father Robert's praying it or I'm somewhere else and a priest is praying it, this again touches on something that is to be a daily pattern in the life of every Christian. Just as God offers Himself in that selfless self-offering to us, our response to God that actualizes His salvation in our life is the offering of ourselves in a loving response back to Him. He has come to me. He has offered me life. He's touched my life. He's revealed Himself to me. My response is this. I give myself back to you. I hold nothing of my own. And the church fathers talk so extensively about the life of self-sacrifice, scraping away into the death of Jesus Christ, the selfishness, so that I'm free to offer myself not only to God, but to offer myself to neighbor alike. And we conclude that part of the prayer saying, we pray that He may dwell in us and we in Him. Just as Jesus, excuse me, just after Jesus proclaims Himself to be the bread of life, He continues with this statement in John 6. I want you to hear this. John 6, verses 53 through 56, Jesus says this. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. When Jesus said these words to his disciples that have been following him for quite some time, he lost almost all of them. They abandoned Him after this statement. Because I want you to think what they're hearing. They're not the church that has existed that understands what He's saying is about the Eucharist. They're saying, they're hearing Him say, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. What's going on in their minds? What's the word for that? Cannibalism. Cannibalism. And don't we understand as good Jews in that time, we play no part in cannibalism. That's against the very law of God. And so he lost three-fourths of his disciples on that very day. Even after he had proclaimed, I am the bread of life. The hardness of their hearts still couldn't receive the truth of what he was saying. Now, i got to tell you, I have to imagine that... Fast forward from that statement in John chapter 6 all the way to the Last Supper. And Jesus takes bread. And He says, this is my body. And He takes the wine and says, this is my blood. You can almost see Peter, James, John, the rest of them going, oh, that's, that's what He meant, right? 
if they'd only just hung out longer, they would have seen this and experienced this. But back to the reality of what we're praying. This is entirely about oneness with Christ through bread and wine. And it is also about answering the question, how is it that we abide in Him? Jesus would use this same terminology again in the parable of the vine and the branches some eight, nine chapters later in the Gospel, where He would say, unless you abide in Me and I in you, you have no life, right? Remember that teaching of the vine and the branches. How do we abide in Christ? The pinnacle event of our abiding in Christ where we are joined together as one, what is it? It's the Eucharist in those very moments. Now that's not the sum total of abiding in Christ. Because let me tell you what abiding in Christ doesn't look like. It doesn't look like coming and receiving life from God who has given it to us for our transformation, for our becoming more like Him, being freed of all the things that damage our souls, and then we go off after Eucharist and live however we want. So don't think that because of the Mass... Oh, I had Eucharist, I abide in Jesus Christ, and then go and live anti-Christ. Never let that happen. We receive the life of God to go from here uniquely different, with grace to overcome sin, with grace to offer up to God on a daily basis all of our frailties and encounter Him in the process. But the Eucharist is the pinnacle expression where the grace is given to do all of that. I've said it so many times and I'll always say it. Jesus loves us far too much to allow us to remain the same. If Jesus came on such an incredible rescue mission of the world to bring humanity reunited with His Father in heaven. He did it so that the lifeline would be reconnected. He did it so the bondage would be cast away and fall off. The scales from the blindness of our eyes would drop and we would experience Him and forever be eternally changed into the only image that reconstitutes peace and true joy and true human creation. For we were created, as we're told in Genesis, we were created in an atmosphere of oneness with God unbroken until the great deception and mankind gave in to it. It is a return to the garden that's been established so that we do see such incredible freeing transformation in our lives. And so we pray this with that very prayer. And now we move on. And we're looking at the second paragraph. And I'm not going to read this whole part, but we get to the part where we pray for those who have gone before us. 
Remember on All Souls Day? All Souls Day is the singular, that Mass is singularly focused on this prayer that we offer up in the Mass every time. We've prayed for one another, we've asked Christ to come, we've joined with heaven and earth, and now we lift up the prayer for those that we are still one with. Those who have died in Christ. Okay? And we pray for those departed. And we pray, I will read the actual prayer for them. We beseech Thee, O Lord, that unto them and unto all such as rest in Christ, the names we read and all who have rested in Christ, Thou wilt grant a place of refreshing of light and of peace. And then we turn it back and ask them to pray for us. And vouchsafe to give unto us some portion and fellowship, and we list some martyrs and apostles and so on. And with all thy saints within whose fellowship we beseech thee to admit us. In other words, we're praying for the eternal peace of God to reside in our brother and sister's life who have gone before us. And vouchsafe, Lord, vouchsafe to give us just some portion. I want you to think about this. This is a little stretch. Okay, I want to stretch you here. Give us some portion of that same experience. Do you remember what story that might remind you of, just asking for some portion? Think about it for a second. We do hear it in a liturgical service every year. Jesus is talking to a woman. The crumbs. The cru- Look, even the dogs get just the crumbs from the table. And he saw that as incredible faith, didn't he? Elisha asked the same thing of Elijah. Very good. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Just the crumbs. There is the humility of that prayer. Yes. But I've been wondering for years. Yes. How did these people that are named here get into the liturgy? They're the very same that are included in the Roman liturgy. And I don't know anything about them. And they are the same. And and remember this. The Roman liturgy, and let's talk the Roman liturgy pre-Vatican II. Because that's what Gregory is. I mean, that's, that's that worship was the same all the way up to Vatican II. And these names were used. Um, would you allow me to do something? Allow me to look up an answer for you. Sure. You, I'd like to know. you win the stump the priest game for the day. <laughs> to be honest with you, I have thought the same thing at different times. Just never gotten around to look up the history of where those particular names came from. I will do my best to find you an answer. Their name and not all of the apostles' That's right. And many of the martyrs. Yep. Yep. And, yet, and in the Mass, we many other times we'll say Peter and Paul and the apostles and all of the saints. By the way, and all of them end every prayer. And all thy saints, don't they? But why these? It's a great question. I'm going to try to find out for you. Yeah. They're also the same ones in the Eastern. They are. That's a great point. Which makes sense because remember, before the split, they were the same. They were the same, right? I'm going to look that up. You got you got me very curious. Very good. Less than not uh, uh, included. I have my feelings hurt. Right. 
Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, you know, I'm sure they're up there in heaven going, why do they keep naming these people, right? You know, that's what they're thinking. All right, let's move on. So we prayed for the departed and asked for the crumbs from the table, so to speak. And we now come to the Lord's Prayer. We come to the part where we together pray. When the disciples asked Jesus, how do we pray? He gave us the Lord's Prayer. And let me briefly go through this, because I did a whole teaching early on when I came. But I want us to remember the form of this prayer. okay? Because we have to get a good ways into the Lord's Prayer before we even ask anything for ourselves. And I think that was intentional of God in Christ giving us the Lord's Prayer. In fact, if you remember, and some of you may not have heard this, when I learned how to use the Lord's Prayer in my own life, it was at a very desperate point in my life. I was going through a lot of discouragement, depression, down about as far low as you can go. And I just dropped Debbie, and it was just Jonathan then. She was very pregnant with Jesse. And I dropped them off in Birmingham, Alabama. They were flying back to New Orleans to be with my parents. And I stopped at this little prayer garden. And I was literally, I literally had no more words to offer God. I was that at the end in my mind and in my emotions. And I told Him. I said, Lord, I can't, I got nothing for you. I have no words to offer you anymore. I am exhausted. I cannot go like this anymore. And in my mind came, why don't you pray what I taught you to pray? And so I started. And I started Our Father. And then I couldn't go any further. And I started talking to God about how He's my Father. Who art in heaven. Started conversing with Him about who He is, where He is, above all things. Holy is Your name, and so on. You know what? An hour later, I had just gotten to the point of asking for the first thing in this prayer, which was, give us this day our daily bread. And something had changed in me. And it's something it noted in my life forever. The reason our Lord gave us this prayer in this format is because He knew that in any time in our life, particularly the most desperate situations in our life, we don't need to be asking for things. We need to redirect our souls Godward. We need to let Him come and shine in the moment. Not thinking, get me out of this, get me out of this, I can't deal with this anymore. Because when we're praying that, we're praying from the posture of being under our circumstances. But when we start praying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And stay there for a while. Now all of a sudden, as we pray, He is with us. And He lifts us up to where He is, which is above those storms. He doesn't take away the storm. But He repositions us where He is. And now I ask more clearly from His will, not my will, because I'm with Him. And I see things. He shares how He sees these things. He brings me where He is. So I encourage you that every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, even though we don't have time for you to take an hour on the first half, Remember this, it is the very prayer structure 
that elevates us, where God brings us to Himself. And that's why it's positioned so late in Mass, leading us right up to the taking of Eucharist. And I encourage you to take time praying that prayer under any circumstances. But we pray the Lord's Prayer. We sing the Lord's Prayer together. And I pray that you will have that experience of being brought up to where He is. And we're going to close with the very last prayer. It's a prayer of deliverance. A prayer of deliverance that you hear the priest pray over all of us. And I do want to read this one to you. Deliver us, we beseech Thee, O Lord, from all evils past, present, and to come. And at the intercession of the blessed, glorious, never-Virgin Mother Mary, and we go through another litany, and all Thy saints favorably grant peace in our time, that by the help of Thy mercy we may ever be kept free from sin and safe from all disquietude through Jesus Christ. What are we praying? In ourselves resides still remnants of things that are not like God. They dwell in us and we utilize them in our lives. And when we do, when we sin, not if, when we sin, we create in our lives that word disquietude that we're asking to be delivered from. What's disquietude? It's the opposite of peace. It's that chaos that happens when we let our anger run too long. When we engage our addictions even further. It's that all that's produced within us that is anti the benefits of the kingdom of God. And we're praying for deliverance from all past evils. We're praying for deliverance even in that moment from all present evils within us and around us. And we're praying for the ones in the, in the future that God will deliver us from all of these things. And we're really preparing ourselves for our Deliverer to come in the Eucharist and grant us His life and His order. Let's stand.